The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for streaming The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. This week, we're going to cover a topic that has caused some controversy, the advance of medical marijuana. Regular listeners might be aware that I generally start by offering to moderate conferences and speak at them, and people have invited me to do so. It's been fun, but at the moment, even as we emerge from lockdown, the prospects of sitting in a large audience are daunting to a great many, and that's having a huge impact on the industry. I'm still presenting and offering masterclasses though, so if your job means that you need to do press interviews or if you want help with online presentation skills, you can find me at remotemediatraining.com. I've been a technology journalist for over 30 years and I know where the traps are, and I've been training remotely for over 10 years. And so we get to my guest for the day, who is a qualified doctor. He's a medical director of your excellent health service, that's Y-E-H-S, president of the International Association of Physicians for the Overseas Services, co-founder of Y-E-H-S We Care, and co-founder of Global Health Action Strategies and Solutions, G-H-A-S-S, that's a lot of initials. He's also served as a medical advisor with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and has over 30 years of experience working with the likes of Merlin, Raleigh International, and Save the Children in Rwanda, and Echo in Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. So basically, in terms of medicine, you'll have to get the hang of it the same as the rest of us. His name is Dr. Charlie Eastman. Charlie, welcome. Thank you, Guy. Welcome. Well, that intro is so obviously crooked from somebody else's notes, as I always do. So tell us a bit about yourself and your organization. As you say, I've been a doctor since 1984. I've had the privilege of traveling to more than 75 countries now. I still have a regular bit of work that I do in the Philippines and in the Ukraine. In my clinical work. I mainly do health screening for people. And at the moment, a lot of that screening is involving testing for COVID-19, both blood tests and for uh, swab tests. And then I have global interest in health related to trying to improve the situation whenever there's a situation like the current one. And I have a great concern about how our international response is never quite as efficient or effective as it should be. You mentioned the current one. I should just place this. We're talking at right at the end of June. This will actually be going out in a couple of months. So we don't know where we're going to be at the end of a couple of months, but we're here to talk mostly about the idea of medicinal marijuana, which is something that interests me quite a lot. I was in Jamaica a couple of years mm. ago on a press trip, and one of the businesses we met was offering medical ma- medicinal marijuana, I believe is the mm. uh, appropriate term. And she tried to give it to one of the journalists. She said, take this with you, try it at home, etc." And the journalist was uh, American, had to get rid of it because they had visions of being stopped at customs by sniffer dogs and the whole works. Mm. So I'm just wondering if you could tell me um, what marijuana can actually do in medical terms. Yeah, we think that it can do a lot. And interestingly enough, A lot of the uh, health benefits of marijuana were suppressed by the Americans, interestingly enough, because they had a fixed agenda to make it an illegal substance or product. So we can remember the fact that Queen Victoria was actually prescribed cannabis by her doctor, and her doctor at the time thought it was a very good remedy. And it used to be on the pharmaceutical lists of the British for many, many years until effectively the Americans discouraged them from having it. Now, part of the reason that uh, marijuana fell into bad odor with the Americans, interestingly, is nothing to do with its medicinal properties. It's the fact that the plant 
also has a part of it which is a fibrous root called hemp and the hemp was used for rope and for paper and William Randolph Hearst who was very powerful the film Citizen Kane is of course based on him didn't like the idea of hemp being used in comparison to wood pulp which he had heavily invested in so he pushed very hard for the whole aspects of marijuana to be made illegal so let's look at the medical side so basically what you've got is a plant that is naturally occurring and you've got uh, two main components of it one of which is called thc and that's the one that gives you the hallucinogenic effect and then you've got another component which is the cannabinoid oil which we call cbd and that doesn't produce any hallucinogenic effect at all but has been known to help people with sleep anxiety depression a huge range of different conditions and what some people are noticing is if they take it in a uh, cream or an oil form it can help with joint problems like arthritis obviously in the uk the press is very aware that it is now uh, used for certain types of epilepsy and there's a fantastic series of ted talks where people discuss the transformational nature of cbd in children especially who had severe epilepsy some of them were having fits on a daily basis several a day and once the titrated dose was correctly done they were getting no fits in a year so that's a phenomenal improvement in people's health so are we still making a fuss because of william randall hurst i mean oh, why is there such a fuss about marijuana these days yeah so basically the americans effectively control most of the world's agenda around drugs and in various forms they've tried to do a war on drugs which is about as pointless as anything you could imagine we know that prohibition of anything never really works and they had a 13 year experiment with alcohol and all that did was help the mafia and, and al capone and various other types become very successful to and be fair you're going back quite some time with that aren't you ah no but the point and the principle is the same because if you think about it what the temperance movement had tried to do was to stop people from drinking beer you know they didn't like men drinking beer uh, once you prohibited things people created cocktails and with cocktails, you then doubled the number of people drinking because women were attracted to the cocktails. <laughs> so the point I'm making is this, is that every time that you impose a prohibition on a drug, all it does is make the manufacturer wiser about what else to produce that's cheaper. So you restrict marijuana, then you force people into creating cocaine or something like that. So my point is that prohibition of things isn't really the answer. And the problem for the British is that because they follow that philosophy, Jim Callaghan's government were going to declassify cannabis from the highest levels, but the press leaked the idea that they were going to be soft on drugs. And soft on drugs doesn't sound good to any government. Sensible on drugs would make sense, but no one discusses that. And I don't know if you're aware, but Professor David Nutt, who was the government advisor on the misuse of drugs, got sacked because he said some really obvious and pertinent things that the government didn't like at the time. Okay, that's interesting. But uh, on the other hand, I was driving yesterday and I went past a uh, hemp shop, which was uh, advertising CBD 
stuff like that. It's in South Croydon. It's quite open. I was at a market before Christmas where they were selling chocolates and uh, there was CBD in the chocolates. They were, uh, you know, this is in South Nord. It was, again, quite openly. Uh, so I'm just wondering where the law actually stands, particularly internationally at the moment. You, you, we were yeah, talking about the instinct towards drugs, but uh, where, where does the law stand? So what, what, what we've um, more recently done is we've accepted the fact that the CBD component of the cannabis is not hallucinogenic. So it doesn't have a psychoactive component. So effectively, what we've said to everybody is right, you can use that. That's why you've got the shops proliferating. But those shops then have to test each batch of the product to make sure it doesn't have any of the hallucinogenic component, which is the THC. Now, if they sold you something and the uh, drug enforcement got hold of that product and tested it and found it was THC, then it would be illegal. So the issue for the people selling it is to make sure that they batch test the product. Some of them use three labs to make sure that the product is as pure as it should be and doesn't contain the hallucinogenic component. So apart from the medical use, the hallucinogenic component is still illegal and it's classified uh, as a class B controlled drug under part two, Schedule D of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. So the complexity is that when they say that you can medically use uh, a drug for, for example, for epilepsy, there's a product called Sativex, for example. Technically, Sativex is cannabis, but equally the government can't say that cannabis is now legal for use, but they can say that the product that's specific for epilepsy is okay for use. Now, the way the law is at the moment, we do have a number of drugs that are illegal, and I have read, whether accurately or otherwise, that if we were introducing, say, alcohol and tobacco right now, they might well fail the test for what uh, should be legal. I'm just wondering whether you think there's a case for changing the laws to allow further use of cannabis, marijuana, and also how we make that politically acceptable. Because, as you say, government going in saying, let's be soft on drugs, even let's be soft on soft drugs, they get all these charges about uh, these are gateway drugs, that they will lead to heroin, all that yeah. sort of stuff, which in some cases I'm sure, I'm sure has happened. Yeah, and, and I think there, there will always be anecdotal stories uh, around that. But if you look at all the restrictions we put in place, it hasn't stopped people using drugs. In fact, drug use generally has gone up. If you look at American teenagers, etc. And uh, one of the interesting things was that when the soldiers were in Vietnam, this, Americans had banned alcohol up to the age of 21. So all that led to was them taking heroin, and you ended up with a whole bunch of heroin addicts. So I think you do need to look very carefully at your policies, and also whether you treat addicts as a criminal issue or as a public health support issue. Just sticking people in jail for using a drug is not the answer to solve the problem. In fact, in some cases, the jail becomes the resource by which they get more addicted or become part of the criminal network that then supplies further drugs. So when people try to make the argument that they want to be hard on drugs, whether soft or not types of drugs, they've got it in a very distorted version because all we're doing is creating more harms for ourselves and more harms for our society. So California, as you know, has now liberalized the use of cannabis and that increased their economic taxation uh, input. Portugal took a more conciliatory approach to this and they've reduced the number of addicts. So 
there are models around the world which show that the traditional mantra of just being hard on drugs can be done better. Do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode? If you talk to the press or other media, are you worried you'll be misquoted, or they'll just publish their story and not yours? Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. Drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. There's obviously an awful lot of contraband marijuana in the system already. How do you regulate something that's already distributed illegally so widely? Yes, so once you introduce regulation, you create another layer of complexity because you then have to say, right, what's the standard? You know, what is, what's the dosage? I.e. is the consumer getting what the consumer expected to get? And then you've got to somehow put that into place. And you've also got to decide what you want to do in terms of taxation. So the answer I would give you there is that we have models from other parts of the world, such as what California has done and what Portugal have done, and we could easily learn from those countries rather than trying to start the whole game from scratch. The other thing, of course, is that the large drug companies, big pharma, as they say, um, are likely to want a piece of this. I'm just wondering where the small grower, like the people I spoke to in Jamaica, can actually fit into that. Yeah, and, and in fact, it's interesting because some people feel that this has been key to the whole issue around the fact that originally big pharma couldn't get the commoditization of drugs like cannabis in place. And that's why they also were very anti the drugs like cannabis. What's interesting is that we as humans have a system in our body that involves cannabis. It's called the endocannabinoid system. So we have receptors both in the brain and in the body for cannabis effectively, and we produce it naturally. And some people, uh, like the people in Jamaica, for example, feel very much that this was a gift from the gods in a way, because we've got a, a substance that's a plant that correlates with us as humans. And so they think that the synergy there is not uh, entirely coincidental. So I think the debate about uh, the use of the cannabis is about what are the harms, what are the benefits. Too many of the benefits have been ignored over time. And if you look at the harms from people using cannabis compared to the harms of people using alcohol, they are definitely less. And less violent crime is committed based on use of cannabis than is based on use of alcohol. I accept that, but then, of course, we're not talking about this instead of alcohol. Uh, We're likely to be talking about any additional crime in addition to alcohol, aren't we? Well, it's interesting because if you're, in a way, it's about choosing your vice, isn't it? And if your vice is to use the drug that's legal, i.e. alcohol, that's the route that you go down. But if your vice could be a drug that became legal, i.e. cannabis, that's a route that you might go down. So one might actually replace the other. It's an experiment we haven't yet done and haven't yet seen. A lot of people, whether it's Richard Branson or others, do believe that we should legalise cannabis because all we're doing at the moment in their mind, and I do tend to agree, is we're creating a criminal fraternity around something that hasn't been proven in real terms to be as harmful as the rhetoric would say it is. 
Okay, on the other hand, uh, LSD was uh, legal in the 60s, wasn't it? And, yeah. uh, you know, there's yeah. a whole Professor Timothy Leary stuff, and that no longer is. I mean, do you think this is an experiment we should do? How would you actually go about, if cannabis were to be found uh, to be really quite damaging, how would you go about withdrawing it after it's been introduced? Well, you know, this, this is always a great question. And I, I'm always amused by apparently the comment that Boris made that it's easier to take away people's freedoms than to give them back, which he was talking about easing the lockdown. I don't think governments have any trouble reimposing legislation once they've relaxed it. The enemies of the relaxation make exactly those projections that this will cause X, this will cause Y, this will cause Z. But sometimes it doesn't cause the horrible things that they claim it would do. And I think that we're all tracking what's happening in Portugal. We're all tracking what's happening in California. And no, to my mind, horrendous horror stories have accrued from either of those two locations that have tried this. So I think that what we've got to do is say to ourselves, okay, we could try easing this and talk to the police, talk to the social workers, talk to the drug addictions therapists and see how, as a group, we can manage the consequences of this in terms of the harms as well as the benefits. But those are communal discussions that we could have as an enlightened society. As we said earlier, we have seen some relaxation of uh, the regulation. There is medicinal cannabis uh, in the country. Um, what changes have you seen as a result? Has there been any research on any therapeutic benefits? The anecdotal stories are probably bigger than the research stories in a way, but people have definitely found that it helps them with sleep. It's definitely helped a lot of people with anxiety. It's helped people with some other mental health issues. It's helped cancer patients with pain it's helped cancer patients with quality of life famous thing with cannabis they always say you get the munchies well it helps with the appetite so if you're fairly skeletal from both chemo and radiotherapy and your appetite is suppressed then we know that cannabis can help with that so you develop an appetite you put on weight you become healthier so so there's a lot of that and then um, my understanding is there is quite a lot of research that was done back in, let's say, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and some of that was actually suppressed. So it's only more recently that people have had access to that. How do you see this developing in the uh, medium term? I'm just wondering, because apart from anything, the idea of uh, getting the munchies and stimulating appetites, one of the things that uh, the Prime Minister is trying to do um, as we speak is to start coming down on the problem of obesity, because he himself was hit harder by COVID-19 than perhaps he might have been because he was obese. And he's quite frank about saying it. He wants everyone to lose weight. And one yeah. of the side effects is that you will start getting hungry. <laughs> it's a great point. So what I was talking about there with improving appetite was for those who are already skeletally thin. And uh, we're not saying that they go from skeletally thin to double Boris size or anything like that. And I think that my experience is that no one who is a regular user is particularly obese. I'm sure when you went to Jamaica, you weren't surrounded by 20 stone Jamaicans. So I'm not sure that that is a harm that we can predict from the use of uh, cannabis. Realistically, what are the next steps do you think the government uh, and the governments internationally might uh, be about to take once the COVID-19 stuff is under control? Because, of course, they've got their medical priority right at the moment. I, think, I can't see them focusing on cannabis uh, terribly immediately. 
Personally, I think that the relaxation on the medical use of cannabis is a good thing, and it allows those doctors who are brave enough to prescribe it, and I say brave enough because uh, a lot of doctors are still frightened by the very idea of going anywhere near it. One of the other things we need to ease is the home office licensing, because basically you need an export license to get it in, but the period of your export license is quite short, so sometimes you've got the product in, but by the time you can prescribe it, the license period might be over, if you see what I mean. So that needs that to be... an export or import license? Sorry, uh, sorry an import license. Right. Import license. Right. My apologies. So, yeah. so again, so that needs to be uh, probably extended. I think we need to look and have more conversations about the benefits versus the harms. And uh, I highly recommend to people uh, Professor David Nutt's book on drugs, which is called Drugs Without the Hot Air. And uh, as I say, he was the government advisor on the misuse of drugs. And another book that I highly recommend to those interested in subject is The Pursuit of Oblivion by Richard Davenport Hines, which is the global history of narcotics from 1500 to 2000. And in that, one can educate oneself about the pros and cons of this debate in a much more informed way. Okay, final question then. Where can people find out more about you and your organization? I know that uh, this is a minor part of what you do, but we wanted to focus on one area uh, for the interview. So where can people find out more about you and get in touch? Sure. Well, we have the privilege of working at One Harley Street and the website address is yourexcellenthealth.co.uk. My email is just charlie at in front of that and be delighted to have any further discussions with people about the medicinal use of uh, cannabis and cannabis products. Dr. Charlie Eastman, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Guy. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk or my media training site at remotemediatraining.com. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Take care.